Before, and it'll be helpful for you to have open verses 1 to 12 as we come to study this passage this morning. Ruth chapter 4 verses 1 to 12 and our theme this morning is Ruth's Redeemer, Our Redeemer. Ruth's Redeemer and Our Redeemer. Well if you've ever bought a gift for your children or the children of your friends or family Uh, One of the things that you consider when you buy a a gift for a child is whether the gift is age appropriate. Uh, If you want to buy a little toddler a book, for example, uh, you're not going to buy them a book that is just page after page of dense, dense text. Uh, You know, the complete works of Charles Dickens or something like that, and uh, really small uh, text size with big words that the toddler will not be able to read or say or understand. You're going to get that little toddler a picture book, an age-appropriate book, and they'll quickly learn to identify the objects in their book and see them in real life and begin to learn that way. And in the Old Testament era, in the earliest years of the nation of Israel, God often taught his people using pictures. He spoke to them, of course, through the prophets, through people like Moses and Isaiah and, and so on. Uh, But he also gave them pictures to help them understand his promises and his words to them. In the Old Testament, of course, God's people didn't yet have all the words of Scripture that we have in our Bibles today. But they had pictures like the pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud that led them out of Egypt. They had the tabernacle and, and then later the temple where all the sacrifices were offered and where they could... Uh, see the, the priests going in to the, uh, where God's presence especially dwelt. Uh, and these things taught them, these pictures helped the people to understand something of the God that they worshipped. And as we go back now today and, and read and study the Old Testament, the pictures are still helpful for us, even though we live in the New Testament era, uh, beyond the, the finished work of Christ. Uh, nonetheless, the, the pictures that we find in the Old Testament are still useful for us. They help us better appreciate and understand the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes we even find people in the Old Testament who look or act or speak a little bit like our Savior Jesus. That's certainly true of the main character in our passage today, Boaz. Boaz, though he was a a real, uh, literal, historical man, he is also for us, friends, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ruth chapter 4, Boaz is the Redeemer who can do for needy people what they cannot do for themselves. And the last time, I should have perhaps said this before our reading, but we saw last week in chapter 3, how Naomi and Ruth took a huge risk to go to Boaz and to ask for his help. You remember how Ruth went in the middle of the night to the threshing floor? It was all a little bit tense and uh, a little bit nerve-wracking. But she essentially asked Boaz to marry her, to redeem her, and, and by extension to redeem Naomi, because Boaz is what was called a kinsman redeemer to Naomi's family. And Boaz said to Ruth in chapter 3 that he was willing to redeem her. He's willing to help her. He cares about her. But there's someone else who is even closer to Naomi and Ruth. A closer relative, a closer redeemer, who would be first in line to help them. 
And so if our story is to get the perfect ending of Boaz marrying Ruth and looking after her and looking after Naomi, if our story is to get that ending, some work needs to be done. And that's what we're going to think about today. We're going to think about the work of the Redeemer. And five things to highlight about the Redeemer's work this morning. First of all, the Redeemer's work is exclusive. The Redeemer's work is exclusive. It is work that only he is able and willing to do. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. The city gate was where you went. It's our equivalent of going, you know, where you would go to meet people in a, in a cafe for a coffee or a chat, but like the sort of the Belfast city centre, say. Uh, it's a place also, though, where legal business was carried out. And so it was a bit of a, the city gate in those days was a cross between the town centre and the town courtroom, you could say. And Boaz has gone there immediately after meeting Ruth at the threshing floor. So you remember how uh, Boaz told Ruth to go home before anybody would see her in case everyone got the wrong idea about what she was doing. And so Ruth had gone home in the early hours of the morning. And as soon as it's daylight, Boaz now heads for the city gate. And what we have to see here and appreciate in chapter 4 is that Boaz is taking all the initiative. Boaz is leading. Boaz is taking the bull by the horns, you might say. He's in charge in chapter 4 and everybody else is responding to him. Look at verse 2. It says that he gathered 10 elders. Uh, Israelite custom said you needed at least 10 men for an official gathering, whether it was a worship service or for business uh, transactions to be legitimate. You needed to have 10 elders. And so Boaz makes sure that he has everything in place for what he wants to do. In verses 3 to 8, you'll notice that Boaz does almost all the talking. Boaz speaks a hundred words almost in verses 3 to 8. This unnamed redeemer, this other redeemer, he only speaks 19 words. Again, that's telling us that Boaz is in charge. Boaz is, is taking the initiative in this situation. Ruth, who we've been focusing on up to now, Ruth, who the, the book is, is named after, she does nothing in this passage. She's come to her Redeemer. She's asked for his help. And now it's all down to him. Boaz does everything. Redeeming Ruth is his work. And friends, there's hardly anything more vital for us to remember about our own redemption our need to be redeemed from sin, there's, there's hardly anything more vital for us to remember than this, that it is all God's work. Our redemption is exclusively the work of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection. There's something in us as human beings that is uncomfortable with that, particularly perhaps for us as individually minded western europeans because we've been brainwashed into thinking that we are the masters of our fate and the captains of our souls and that what we do and where we are is all because of our abilities and that message is thrown at us day after day in the advertisements for products that 
are all about you know one person getting it done the stories that are told in our movies and our music it's all about me against the world and, and me striving to achieve and the trap we could fall into is thinking that when it comes to our salvation when it comes to our good standing before God it's all about what we do as well our pride doesn't like the idea that we're somehow helpless as regards our salvation that we are completely dependent on someone else to do all the work for us you see this even in little children Uh, from their earliest days maybe some more than others but they tend to want to contribute to things even when they have absolutely nothing to contribute Uh, my parents are just about to move house so they've been packing up in Lima Valley and and, I was looking through some photos the other day and I remember we we have a photo uh, of a long long time ago now of my dad cutting the lawn when I was I, I don't know two three four years old and dad's back is to the camera and he's cutting the lawn in the home that I was born into and I'm trundling along beside him and as dad pushes the lawnmower I'm pushing some wee cart or trailer or something alongside him on the grass that he's already cut and I'm sure at the time I thought I was contributing a huge amount to the grass cutting efforts that particular day in Ballykelly when the truth is I wasn't contributing anything he was doing all the work I just got to go alongside him And this is what marks out the gospel of Jesus Christ, friends, from every false religion, including some of the empty Protestant ideas in Northern Ireland today. Some people in our community today have the mistaken notion that they're okay with God because they've been born under the Union flag, or they've been baptized into a particular church, or they still pay money into a particular church, or they're good people or good enough or better than those other ones. Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is a gift provided for us by our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has gone and done all the work. Regardless of who you are, where you're from, your nationality, your job, your surname, your employment status, whatever. Salvation is from the Lord. Ephesians 2 verse 8, we read it earlier, for by, for by grace, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. None of us have anything to boast about, friends. When it comes to our redemption, like Ruth, all we contribute is our need, our sin, our need to be redeemed. All the work has been done by someone else. And so all the praise and honor and glory should go to someone else, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And so firstly, the Redeemer's work is exclusive. But secondly, the Redeemer, we want to notice that the Redeemer is willing. The Redeemer is willing to do this work. The Redeemer is willing to do this work. We've seen already that Boaz was under no obligation to help Ruth He told her at the threshing floor that he wasn't the closest in line to redeem her. There was someone else closer to Naomi who was uh, by law first in line to redeem Ruth, to marry her, to look after her. And friends, if he had wanted to, Boaz could have left it at that. He could have said, well, you know, Ruth, Naomi, 
you're not actually my problem. There's this other guy, closer relative of Naomi's dead husband, and this is all his issue. This is his problem to sort out. He's your man, not me. But Boaz, as we've seen, friends, is a worthy man. A man full of loving kindness, what the the Hebrew word chesed that keeps popping up in this book. He's a man concerned to uphold the law of God. And he also cares deeply about Ruth. We've seen that. Dare we say it, that Boaz is attracted to Ruth. He, he, he sees Ruth's faith. He sees her faith in God. He sees her love for Naomi. He sees how hardworking she is. Boaz wants to marry Ruth and look after her and Naomi. But he, he has shown them loving kindness. Unlike the Pharisees, you remember the Pharisees, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, who were always picking fights with Jesus because they thought a relationship with God was really all about making up as many rules as you could and then keeping all those rules more than everybody else. And they thought that's what made you right with God. No, Boaz doesn't look at God's law that way at all. Boaz is a man who understands that God's law is really all about showing the same love to our neighbor as God has shown to us. Showing the kind of self-sacrificing, self-forgetful love to others that God has shown to us. Sinclair Ferguson says that Boaz is a living, breathing example of Psalm 119. Psalm 119, where we see the psalmist over and over again declaring his love for God's word. How he has stored up God's word in his heart. How he meditates on God's word day and night. How he takes every opportunity to put it into practice. That's what kind of man Boaz was, friends. And because of that, he wants to redeem Naomi and Ruth. He wants to show them gracious, Christ-like love. That's why he was found that particular morning, first thing, marching off to the city gate to get this job done. And again, in Boaz, we see a picture, an imperfect picture, but a picture nonetheless of what God has done for us in Christ. God the Father, friends, was under no obligation to save sinners who had disobeyed him. He was under no obligation to send his son down to this earth, calling upon him, commanding him to live a life of hardship and sorrow and to then offer himself up for us on the cross. Why did God do all of that? John three sixteen, For God so loved the world. God saved us not because we had earned it, not because we deserved it, but because he simply chose to love us, to show steadfast loving kindness to us. Boaz so loved Ruth that he acquired the land and acquired her hand. Jesus so loved us that he gave up his land, his throne in heaven, and stretched out his own hands on the cross. God simply chose to save us, friends. He simply did it out of love. The Reverend Donnelly, preaching in this passage, says it's crucially important to drive from our hands the notion Sorry, to drive from our minds the notion that God owes us anything. And some people talk in those terms. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, how can it be right that 
People who have never heard the gospel are condemned to, to judgment and punishment forever. Reverend Donnelly says that's a thoroughly bad question. It smuggles in the notion that God is depriving us of something that we are owed. Human beings, by nature, we have chosen sin. We have chosen death and the punishment that comes with it. Hell is getting not only what a sinner deserves, but what a sinner has chosen. Hell is the result of our choice to be away from God and away from his love and away from his presence. But if by grace we've been saved, God has overruled and God chooses to change us and God chooses to cause us to be born again to a living hope and to enjoy his loving, gracious presence forever. God saves us, friends, simply because he has chosen to love us. He was and is willing to save. Christ came, lived, obeyed, suffered, died and rose, redeemed us because he loved us. So the Redeemer's work is exclusive work. It's work that he is willing to do. Thirdly, the Redeemer's work is costly work. The Redeemer's work is costly work. And we've touched on this a little bit already, but it's worth emphasizing further. For Boaz to acquire Naomi's land and Ruth's hand was not straightforward. Again, because of the issue of this other redeemer who was nearer to the family than, than Boaz. And so as the story unfolds, what we see is that Boaz has to act with great skill and great wisdom if he is going to get to marry Ruth. Notice how he deals with this other unnamed redeemer. Look at verse 3. Naomi, who has come back, this is Boaz speaking to the unnamed redeemer. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it. Now that actually sounds at first, that would have sounded like quite a bargain to this unnamed redeemer. Naomi is willing to sell her land and it's a parcel of land, Boaz says. So most likely because she's a widow, because she's in need, it's not going to be too expensive. And this man can then add this small piece of land at a reasonable price to the land that he already owns and who wouldn't want that who wouldn't want a bargain piece of land to add to your family name and so as quickly as he can this man says verse 4 I will redeem it I will redeem it sounds good to me uh, I get some more land and probably he's thinking everyone's going to think what a great person he is for uh, for helping out this poor widow uh, and it's win-win and he's good to go but Boaz hasn't quite told them the whole story. And Boaz drops a bit of a bombshell on him in verse 5. Verse 5, Boaz adds on this little bit of information. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. What Boaz is saying, friends, here is, oh, by the way, one other thing just before you sign off on the land, if you take the land, you also have to marry a Moabite widow. And this changes everything. This would mean that the land of this man would not stay, this particular bit of the land, Naomi's land, would not stay in his family with any children that he might have already. It wouldn't stay in his name. 
It will remain in the name of Ruth's dead husband, Machlon, and his father, Elimelech. So this man is being asked to take the land and take a wife, neither of whom will take his name. Not only that, but he's having to marry an already widowed Moabite woman. And what are his friends and neighbours going to think of that? And all of a sudden, the Redeemer, the other Redeemer, changes his tune. At first he said, I will redeem it. Now he says, I can't redeem it. It's too big a sacrifice. It will cost me too much. When Boaz first calls out to this man in verse 1, most of our Bibles have the word friend. Boaz says, come here, friend. Uh, In the original Hebrew, the word really means something like what we would say, here, so-and-so, what's your name? Thingy. And that's how the writer of Ruth wants us to think about this man, Mr. No Name, Mr. So-and-so, a man so concerned with looking after his own inheritance, protecting his own good name, that he's not willing to pay the price to redeem and to provide for Ruth and Naomi. And yet the irony is, friends, that 3,000 years later, it's Boaz's name that we do remember. It's Boaz's name that has lived on, and we don't even know what the name of this other Redeemer was. But we should also appreciate here that Boaz was being clever. He knew that it was a steep price, not just to pay for land, but to marry a Moabite widow. Boaz quite possibly knew this man. This is a small town, not very many people. Boaz perhaps knew that if he presented the case in a particular way, this man would soon be scared off. (laughs) But the the point is, friends, that unlike this other man, Boaz is willing to pay the price. And the irony is that because Boaz was willing to sacrifice, because he was willing to pay the financial cost and perhaps pay the cost of people turning up their nose or thinking what's he doing marrying a Moabite because Boaz was willing to pay the price his name is remembered he pays for the land he makes Ruth his wife he provides he redeems Naomi and Ruth and provides for their future and again if you're a Christian today it's worth reflecting on the fact that an even greater cost was paid for your redemption than was paid for the redemption of Ruth Our Redeemer went not just to the city gate like Boaz, but our Redeemer had to go outside the city gate, outside the city of God where everything unclean and shameful and unholy was taken. And our Savior was put on a cross to redeem his people. What a costly, selfless purchase. Psalm 49 verse 7, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life For the ransom of a life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Think of what it costs the Son of God to redeem you. To come down to this wicked world leaving the glory of heaven behind. To be despised and slandered and ill-treated. Eventually murdered. To be forsaken by God the Father for those agonizing hours that he spent on the cross. Christ Jesus, friends, was willing to pay the price. John says in one of his letters, What manner of love is this 
that we should be called sons of God. What kind of love is it that is willing to pay the kind of price that Jesus paid for sinners to be saved? And if we need any more reason to hate our own sin, if we need any more incentive to count the cost of following Jesus for ourselves, of putting sin to death, if we need any more incentive to be more gracious and loving and patient with the people and situations that we find it difficult to be gracious and loving and patient toward, friends, we find it outside the gate of Jerusalem where Jesus Christ paid the price to secure our redemption. The work of the Redeemer is exclusive work. It is work that he was willing to do. The work of the Redeemer is costly work. Fourthly, the Redeemer's work is completed and final. The Redeemer's work is completed and final. Everything here in Ruth chapter 4 is very official and formal. I mentioned earlier the town gate was where you went for official business. You imagine today going to get your passport uh, changed or your marriage license sorted out or land changing hands. It all happened at the city gate. And as I mentioned, Boaz makes it all the more official by gathering 10 elders, trusted, respected residents of the town. And notice how he refers to them. There's another legal word that appears in verses 9, 10, and 11. Boaz says that they are witnesses. You are witnesses. And they respond, we are witnesses. What he's saying is that you've seen all of this happen. It's official. It's verifiable. Everything's been done in the way that it's supposed to be done. There's no turning back. Even to this day, you have to have witnesses when you get married. And this is why, you know, your best man and your, your maid of honor uh, sign the, the register and so forth. Uh, you have to have witnesses for something to be verified legal, legally. There's also this bit with the sandal, which adds a further layer of legality to it all. Uh, whoever was giving up their right to land in that culture took off their sandal. Uh, this was like signing the contract or, or shaking hands. This was a way of saying, my feet won't ever trespass on this land again. It's not my land anymore. It's your land now. See, friends, it wasn't enough that Boaz simply wanted to help Naomi and Ruth. He had to do it in the right way, with respect for all God's laws and for the legal process. This is why, again, even to this day, if two people uh, want to be married, they can't just say, well, we're married. There's a legal process you have to go through. There are particular things that need to be done. And it was the same for Boaz here. But legally, publicly, carefully, Boaz did everything that was required of him to redeem Ruth. And again, similarly, our redemption has been secured for us in a legal, public, definitive way. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, on one occasion, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at once. The risen Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at once. Friends, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were all public, verifiable, historical events. Remember when Jesus was arrested in the dead of night? It was only Jesus' enemies that wanted to do things in secret. And Jesus said to them, why are you arresting me in the dead of night? I've been at the temple in Jerusalem every day the last few weeks. Everybody's heard me. Everybody's seen me. You could have come and spoken to me then anytime you wanted. 
On one occasion, the Apostle Paul was witnessing to a man called Agrippa. And Paul said to Agrippa uh, concerning Jesus and his life and death and resurrection, he says, these things haven't been done in a corner. In other words, they haven't been done in secret. They've been done publicly for everybody to hear about and investigate. At the start of his gospel, the, the gospel of Luke, Luke writes, he says, at Luke chapter 1, It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. What Luke was saying to Theophilus, the man that he was writing to, was, Everything that I've written about here about Jesus, I've done the investigative work, I've spoken to the eyewitnesses, all these things are public historical events. Jesus Christ, friends, has kept every part of God's law perfectly. He has done everything that was required of him according to the Ten Commandments and even also according to the civil and ceremonial laws that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament era. He has done all his work for everybody to hear about and see. When he sent out the first believers in the early church, he called them his witnesses. And even we today are still his witnesses. And so when you believe in Jesus Christ, you're not believing in some deluded prophet, some self-appointed Messiah. You're believing in the one whom God the Father has officially endorsed by raising him from the dead. The one whom God the Father has given his seal of approval to. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. You're believing in the one who has done everything that needed to be done for us to be saved, for us to be redeemed. And so are you trusting in him and in no one else for the forgiveness of your sins? What assurance, what tangible proof can you point to other than the person and work of Jesus for your eternal inheritance? What gives you your rest, your peace at night? The special relationship you have with someone will end one way or another. The health will falter. The possessions will wear out and break down. The children will one day fly the nest. What assurance do you have that your eternal inheritance is secure? Have you made the same humble plea to the Redeemer who is able and willing and ready and has done all the work for your redemption? Have you come to Jesus as Ruth came to Boaz and said, spread your wings over me? And have you trusted, have you entrusted your soul and your future to Jesus, your perfect Redeemer? Lastly, the Redeemer's work brings blessing. The Redeemer's work brings blessing. Look at verse 10. Boaz says, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Machlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers. Machlon was Ruth's dead husband and Naomi's dead son. And Boaz is saying here, the name of Machlon and the name of his father Elimelech, their names will live on. I will redeem the land. Ruth and Naomi had lived through a tragedy. 
They faced losing their place in the promised land, but instead, because of the Redeemer, Mahlon's name will not be lost. It will endure for generations to come. Look how the witnesses respond to this. Verse 11. May the Lord make the woman, that's Ruth, who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. What they're saying is, friends, that they're going to be praying for God's richest blessing on the household of Boaz and Ruth. They're also, in a sense, reminding Boaz of the wonderful grace that God has already shown to their household. Tamar and Judah, if you know that story, those were two people who had acted shamefully and sinfully in their relations together. But God nonetheless graciously overruled and continued their family line. And if God was willing to do that for them, how much more might he bless godly Boaz and godly Ruth? The words of the witnesses here remind us of the words of Psalm 127 written many years later. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And the witnesses are saying here that they're going to be praying that God blesses Boaz's house, that he provides offspring, children and grandchildren, to Ruth and to Boaz. And notice how these elders, these were obviously godly men. Notice how they pray for Ruth. Ruth, who used to be a pagan Moabite. They pray that she will become like Leah and Rachel. That is to say that she'll be counted as one of the great women of Israel, a mother to the children of Israel. And they pray for the name of Boaz to be remembered from generation to generation. Did God answer these prayers? Yes, he did. Here we are today, a few thousand years later, and we still are talking about Boaz and Ruth and how God blessed their family. And we'll think more about how he blessed their family this evening. But even more than we're talking about Boaz and Ruth, we are rejoicing over, we are talking about the name of their greatest descendant, one who came from their family line, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the richest and the greatest and the most long-lasting blessings have been secured by Christ for his spiritual family. We read about some of them earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. We read about them last week in Ephesians chapter 1. He has given us everlasting life. We are saved from the agony of hell and we know that we are going to be with God forever someday in the new heavens and the new earth. What greater blessings could there be than that? And so friends, our Redeemer's work is exclusively his work. It is work that he is willing to do. It was costly work. It is finished work. And it is work that gives us great blessings. Just as Boaz filled Ruth's plate with food, our Savior fills our souls with joy this day as we think of all the good things that he has given to us. Just as Boaz gave Ruth a family that will continue for generations, so we are part of a family, the church, that will continue forever. We sing the words of Psalm 128 with fresh meaning today. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. 
If you're trusting in your Redeemer today, friends, those are the blessings that you have, perhaps now in some measure, but certainly in the future. You have life and land that will never be taken away from you. You're part of a family of God's people that will last forever, all because of the exclusive, costly, finished work of our great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all glory to his name, now and forever. Amen.